You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer, and sadly, the outgoing editor of Campus, Times Higher Education's best practice advice platform. And I'm Eliza Compton, the interim editor of Campus. And it's February here in London, and it definitely shows and sounds in our voices, so apologies for the croakiness. But that's not why we're here to talk today. 2024 will be an exceptional year for democracy around the world, with more voters than ever in history going to the polls to vote in elections in more than 80 countries. And as pillars of democratic societies, Universities and colleges are integral to the exercise of choosing our public representatives. In today's episode, we speak to two political scientists about voting habits, especially among young people, and how universities can encourage their campuses and their communities to engage in the democratic process, which, as we've learned, goes way beyond just turning up to vote every few years. First up, we've got Elizabeth Maddow, a research professor and teacher of democratic education, as well as the director of the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. Elizabeth, welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. Uh, Elizabeth, do you want to just start off telling us what uh, what you're doing at the Eagleton Institute and what, what work they're doing? Absolutely. So the Eagleton Institute of Politics is a unit of Rutgers University. We've been a part of Rutgers University for almost 70 years. Um, so we're fairly certain we are the first university-based institute of politics. Um, and the mission of our institute is to really link the study of American politics with the practice of politics. Um, Our catchphrase is study politics, inspire engagement, and improve democracy. So although a lot of us here are political scientists, um, we, our goal, uh, you know, is a little distinct from political science in that not only are we engaging in research, we're really trying to take the research that we do and apply it to contemporary problems, try to make things better, try to improve democracy. Um, and we really we really try to weave together our research, our education, and our public service. So one is informing the other. So for example, we've done a lot, our Center for, the Ameri- for American Women and Politics um, is really one of the premier centers nationwide that studies women in politics. Um, They do a lot of research on what are the factors that encourage or inhibit women from running for office. And then they take that research and actually use it to build the capacity of women to run for office. So they may do research on women and their access to office, but then they have this long running training called Ready to Run, where they use that research. So it's evidence based trying to train women who want to run for office. Um, whenever possible, we try to you know, uh, weave our educational programs in with our research and our public service. So for example, the Center for Youth Political Participation, we may study, we do study in the classroom or have students talk about in the classroom what research has been done on youth political participation. But then they extend that learning by going outside the classroom and actually participating in our um, voter registration and mobilization drives. So the, the institutes of politics, there are many, many more now. Um, they play a unique role on a campus in that they offer that hands-on 
training, uh, the skill building that not only political science students need and use, but students across campus of all disciplines need to be engaged democratic citizens. Yeah, let's, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit, but tell me how you define and understand civic engagement. It's a, it's a great question, and I think it's one we continue to grapple with. Um, I've been really fortunate to be part of a few um, edited volumes published by the American Political Science Association about the topic of teaching civic engagement. Um, and really, in the first one, uh, there was you know, a lot of attention just dedicated to what do we mean by civic engagement. People sort of come to it from different approaches. Some try to really distinguish something like volunteering from political engagement, seeing them as separate and distinct, keeping volunteering civic engagement apart from politics. Um, mm -hmm. I approach it, and I think more and more a common understanding of um, civic engagement is really thinking, in essence, is about caring about your community, being informed about your community, identifying the problems within your community, but even more importantly, trying to make those, trying to fix those problems, um, trying to make things better in your community. And you know, you can have a, a lot of discussions about what do we mean by community, but it's the idea of caring about, participating in deliberations about, engaging with others engaging in conversation with others about how to fix problems in your community. So that may entail learning about what's going on in your surrounding environment. It may entail identifying who's holding political power um, in, in your community and are they serving, are they serving the problem? Are they trying to make problems better? Um, or do perhaps we need different people representing um, our community in office? Are we trying to hold office holders accountable? So it's not just determining who's sitting in office, it's also making sure they're, you're holding them accountable. Are they following up? Are they doing what they said they were going to do to address a problem, whether it's um, you know, fixing the roads or addressing problems related to food scarcity? Um, and then another really important element is actually volunteering. Um, you know, not only do we try to solve public problems by electing people to office who will address them, but we ourselves can be volunteering, we can be engaging in social entrepreneurship. So I would say it's a, it's a, it should be considered broadly, the notion of civic engagement and really multifaceted. Um, and in that way, it offers a lot of opportunities to participate and try to make your communities better beyond just voting. Certainly voting is really important, you know, it's key, but it's not the only way to be civically engaged. I was I was just about to say, I noticed you haven't said voting, but then you, you got it in just at the very end there, because I think that is kind of the default. That's just what people think. Oh, civic engagement is, yes, maybe volunteering, but certainly voting. And but that like can be really restrictive. Um, first of all, it, it suggests that you only need to be an informed and engaged citizen at election time. You know, maybe it's every four years in the United States uh, for a presidential election, maybe every two years. But, you know, thinking 25, you know, 30, 365 days a year, thinking all year long is really important. And, you know, certainly for, for many of us who are in this work, we're dealing with uh, or working with uh, young adults who may not be old enough to vote, but also we are often um, working with um, people who are not eligible to vote uh, for a variety of reasons, whether it's their citizenship status or any other reasons that might preclude them from voting. 
I think we really want to instill the idea there is still a role for you. There's an important role for you to play in a community. Voting is really important, but there are many other facets of being um, a democratic citizen. Staying on the topic of voting, however, um, uh, in 2020, there was a record 66% of college students got out to vote. Any ideas of why you think that is? Is it because of greater civic engagement? Is it because of the pandemic? Is it more effective get out the vote campaign, something else? Yeah, it was a funny year because certainly we went into 2020 prior to the to COVID, um, you know, really excited or really feeling enthusiastic about what youth voter turnout would be based on um, steady increases in voter turnout among young adults in previous elections. Certainly, there was great concern um, with the pandemic, with the global health emergency for many reasons. But one concern was a large number of college students were not on their campuses, including Rutgers University, where I'm located. Um, We were remote. We were engaged in remote instruction that entire academic year. Um, And so there was real concern if we weren't on campus, would students have the support that they needed? Um, And remarkably, as you mentioned, students turned out in, you know, college age students turned out in record numbers. I would attribute that to a few factors, you know, three factors in particular. A lot of it, I think, is generational. Um, college age students in that election year, we were looking at Generation Z. Um, and Generation Z has a lot of qualities. One really exciting one is that there is more attention and inclination to engage in sort of traditional political forms of engagement. Um, The prior generation millennials had been very focused on uh, what I was referencing earlier, sort of civic engagement, trying to address public problems through volunteering, through public service. With Generation Z, um, and we often look to the March March for Our Lives movement um, and the Parkland shooting as, as one sort of touch point or moment in the timeline where you started to see young adults look to politics, look to democratic processes such as voting as a way to affect change. So I think that's part of it. Part of it was generational. We were, a a second is just the conditions of the United States, the globe at that moment. Um, You know, young adults, um, I think we're in many ways taken by by surprise uh, by the Trump presidency. And in many ways, it was a wake up call about the importance or the relevance of political office holders and the decisions that they make and the implications that that can have on our everyday lives. A really stark reminder of how important elections are um, and how important their participation is. So I think what you hear both anecdotally and in the research is that students really knew that their participation mattered. Um, mm. that this was an important, important election. Not only the Donald Trump factor, keeping in mind too, This was right after the killing of George Floyd um, in the United States. There was so much attention to the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, and students were very tuned into that and wanted to make a difference. The other is just practicalities um, uh, that ended up working to to young adults' favor. Um, There were a number of states that in order to, because of the health emergency, made changes to election day practices or electoral practices that made it easier to vote. Um, New Jersey actually had the highest youth voter turnout in 2020. A lot of that had to do with good work that we were all doing, but also electoral changes. So for example, in past years, 
if students wanted, if our college students wanted to vote by mail, you had to fill out an application, send it in. There was a process that you had to go to, go through in order to, to vote by mail. In New Jersey, to, to address the public health emergency, every registered voter, no matter what, was sent a ballot. Um, and you didn't have to request the ballot, you just got it in the mail. So that's so beneficial for a lot of voter, uh, voters, really beneficial for young adults. Um, there are a lot of burdens associated with voting for young adults. So I would say those three factors um, really made a positive difference in New Jersey, but nationally um, in, in increasing youth voter turnout. That's that's fascinating. Um, and just lo- looking at the 2024 elections now, um, we don't have the we aren't we don't have the proximity to the George Floyd murder. We're not as deeply steeped in the pandemic, but we do still have the Trump effect or in the risk of a Trump presidency. If it is a risk, depending on your political inclinations, are you expecting right. to see a similar turnout among young people this year? I am hopeful that there will be similar turnout, but I do think there's some some causes for concern, or I, I think there is there is real reason for all of those of us who are really trying to support and encourage youth voter turnout to really be on our game and to really be doing everything we can to encourage and support students as they're going out and thinking about the election. Um, I think, as I referenced earlier, a number of states um, you adopted these facilitative voting practices um, in 2020, they didn't all necessarily uh, persist. You know, for many, it was a one-time only um, opportunity. So for example, not all of those conditions are in place in New Jersey, for example. We've done, New Jersey has done a lot um, to make voting more accessible to young adults, but something like everyone getting a ballot in the mail, that's not gonna happen this year. So, I think, and that just highlights the biggest challenge with youth voter turnout in the United States anyway, is that every state has their own set of voter registration and election day practices. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, if you've lived, as I have lived in the same house for 25 years, I I voted at the same location for 25 years, there's no mystery. I know exactly where I go, I know what to do, I know I'm registered. For people who move frequently, and a lot of that is young adults, and not only move between states, but even within their state, to really help them understand, you need to update your voter registration, you need to make sure you're going to the correct polling location. So we may not have that sort of electoral, the support of electoral law that we had in 2020. Um, there for sure is real, uh, there is a sense of um, not, not great enthusiasm right now um, among young adults, not just young adults, there's sort of a lack of enthusiasm broadly. Um, that being said, it is February, um, and I think the closer we get to the election, um, that attention will increase. There's still a lot that can happen between now and then. Um, but I would say there is reason to be concerned. I'm always hopeful, but I think it's really going to be incumbent upon all of us who want young adults to be voting, and we all should want young adults to be voting, but certainly those of us on college campuses to really be seeking good evidence-based best practices for supporting their students and getting them to the polls. Let's talk a little bit about that. What sort of tips for our our listeners who are working in universities, what should they be doing to not just get students to the polls, but to really engage in some of those activities of civic engagement that you talked about? 
Well, I'm glad you, I mean, the first thing I would say is really making it clear that there is a role for higher education. There is a role for colleges and universities to play. Um, and in many ways, it aligns with the mission of higher education. Um, I think I think that's been lost for for many years. I think certainly, thankfully, in recent years, there's heightened attention to the mission of colleges and universities to prepare their students to be informed and engaged democratic citizens, helping them understand that's part of their job. Um, you know, we, we often forget democracy is confusing. <laughs> American democracy is really confusing. Um, and we're not born understanding what it means to be part of a democratic society, to be active participants in a democratic society. It needs taught. Certainly needs caught, taught in K to 12, but it certainly can and should be taught in higher education. The, the, the benefit is there's a nice body of both scholarly literature and best practices when it comes to encouraging um, not just voting, but civic engagement broadly. Um, and it can be done in the classroom. You know, there are ways in which you can offer civic engagement learning opportunities in the classroom. You know, some of the best ways are offering experiential learning opportunities. You know, take what you're learning in the classroom and extend it to your campus community. High quality service learning opportunities. Um, you could be embedded in your coursework, no matter what the discipline, doesn't have to be political science. Um, but just talking politics, engaging in discussions about politics can and should take place, again, not just in political science classrooms, but broadly um, in other disciplines and across campus. And there's a growing body of research and pedagogy on how to do that in a way that's nonpartisan, but pro-democracy. Um, lots of guides, lots of best practices. You know, I certainly would point to edited volumes that I've been involved in with the American Political Science Association dedicated to teaching civic engagement, not just political scientists, but across disciplines. Um, but there are a number of, of, of best practices out there, but just the notion that you're a campus community that cares about politics, talks about it, sets an important tone, um, and that you'll be offered opportunities to learn, uh, about, you know, to learn more about American democracy by talking about it, even when they're difficult conversations, probably especially when there are difficult conversations. There's great um, research that was conducted by Nancy Thomas and Margaret Brower that's featured in one of these edited volumes that really emphasizes how important campus culture is to fostering a sense of civic engagement and often will be reflected in higher voter turnout rates. Um, but just offering opportunities to engage in discussion is really one really, really important facet of it. Hmm. And it sounds like also just kind of showing people that politics and civic engagement is is for them, that it's accessible, that it's not just for the young Republicans on campus or, I don't know, the people who are interested in student government, that it, it can be anyone and it's okay to maybe sound a bit silly or not have the right vocabulary to participate in those discussions. Completely. I think making it as open as a, as an and accessible as possible. Again, not something you just sort of opt into because you're a political science major, but I think helping students understand that um, whether we often hear students say, I'm not really that interested in politics. I don't, you know, I don't follow politics. Helping students understand that whether you follow it or not, 
um, the people that are elected to office, the decisions that they make will affect you personally, will affect your profession. Um, as you know, as you're as you're in college, thinking about your what your professional life is going to be. Um, if you're going to be an engineer, a biologist, an economist, all of these professions will intersect with politics. So helping them understand how and how, you know, helping them understand not only how politics affects them, but how they can affect the political process. And again, that's the benefit of thinking of civic engagement broadly, um, that there are many ways to be involved in the political process and many compelling reasons to be involved in the political process. Um, you know, especially college campuses are a great location too to involve students in local politics. So much attention is paid to national politics and presidential elections and all certainly very important and meaningful. But so much of our everyday lives um, are affected by state and local politics. Um, I'm at the State University of New Jersey. Um, if you're at a public university, certainly the decisions made by your state legislatures, um, by your city councils, will affect you. Uh, mm -hmm. The good part is there it's it's much more accessible to get involved in local and state politics, um, whether it's attending a city council meeting, um, you know, contacting your state legislator, um, participating in, you know, public meetings. Um, it's it's accessible to, to students. Um, so it's also a great learning opportunity about the, the connection between your individual life and and the political world. Colleges have been um, under greater pressure recently to have free and open discourse on their campuses, especially now with heightened tensions in the Israel-Hamas war. Um, there are lots of <laughs> topics that uh, are, are stoking a lot of fiery debate on campus to varying degrees of success are universities navigating these tough issues. Do you think that that is perhaps putting students off of civic engagement in general? I, I, it's interesting you say it. I don't know if it's putting them, putting them off. I, I feel what I have felt in my classroom over the years, but certainly now, is there is a, an under, a, there's a desire actually to have conversations. There's a, there's a, but there is a trepidation about how to have political conversations in a way that is going to be productive, that is going to um, be respectful, but also honest and candid. Um, so I don't think necessarily, I haven't found at least uh, in with students that I'm working with that we have here, I think more and more there's just unease on how do you have a conversation. Often that's a reflection of unease by faculty. Um, I think there are plenty of us, plenty of faculty who want to engage in political discussion, feel it's part of our duty as instructors to bring these discussions into the classroom but don't feel equipped, don't feel comfortable, have real trepidation about their own security, uh, their own professional security in having these discussions. So one thing I think that's really important and heartening is you know, that uh, the more attention that is being given to giving faculty the tools that they need to have these difficult conversations in the classroom. Again, a nice growing body of scholarship related to things called deliberative dialogue, um, and other, you know, there have been other initiatives that really equip faculty of all disciplines to have these conversations. So, for example, one practice that I use um, fairly consistently is the idea of creating a set of ground rules or norms or practices for political discussion. Letting students know from the very beginning of the class 
We're going to talk about politics. Sometimes it's going to be heated. Sometimes it's going to be difficult. Um, that it's part of the learning process, but that we also want students to feel as if they're in an environment where they can feel safe enough to be brave, um, you know, feel as if they can say what's on their mind in a way that still allows us to, to learn in community, um, in a way that's going to be conducive to a diversity of people, diversity of learners. So, you know, I will do it old school with a piece of butcher paper and a marker, and we will just talk about what are some of the norms and practices we should abide by, or we should try to aim for creating a culture where we can talk about things. So it might be things such as um, listen to understand, not to convince. It might be make sure you're sharing the airspace. Um, it might be, um, it, you know, if, if, you don't, if, you've, if you've been hurt by something that's been said, to have the courage to say, what you just said bothered me a little bit. Can we revisit what you just said? Um, not to stereotype people or label them based on their political affiliations, the t-shirts they're wearing, the laptop, you know, the stickers that are on their laptops. Um, and we come up as a group, come together and kind of do this mutually agreed upon set of norms and practices. And after every class session, we'll say, how do we do? You know, did we hold, let's hold ourselves accountable. Did we live up to these standards? What could we do better next time? Or if things go off the rail, how did things go wrong? How could we come back and get back together in, in community and engage in discussion? So that's just one best practice. There are lots more. Um, I'm fortunate here on Rutgers University's campus, President Holloway has really prioritized um, democratic learning and civic engagement and that this is part of it. Um, fostering an environment where you can have the free expression of ideas, but also make sure that students feel as if uh, that the learning environment is conducive to all learners, um, that we're teaching respect at the same time. It's not just the free expression of ideas. We're also instilling a sense of respect, mutual trust, um, mutual care, uh, that these things can go hand in hand. You don't have to, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Elizabeth, I'm also curious to know from your expertise as a political scientist, how you're seeing kind of the state of U.S. democracy right now and how you've seen it evolve over time. And I'm, re I'm really looking for a positive response here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. Uh, I, if, I, if I could say we're at a moment where it's really an inflection point. It's an opportunity, perhaps, to really think seriously about the state of our democracy and really make a commitment to improve our democracy. Um, without a doubt, of course, um, you know, January 6th was a tremendous turning point um, in the United States. And I think in many ways demonstrated, um, for me as someone who's dedicated a lot of her profession to civic engagement education, that there is a real lack of common understanding, broad understanding of democratic norms and practices. Um, you know, the idea that that could be conceived as a free expression or, you know, you know, coming together to express your public, your opinion or expression of free speech. It wasn't, you know, that, that was really trying to delegitimize an election, a fair election. So I think in many ways it was a tremendous wake up call. Um, I think there are plenty of reasons to be concerned about the health of American democracy, democracies around the globe, frankly. Um, but if anything, I think it heightens the importance for me of teaching democracy. Um, I think for many, it was a real wake up call, higher education in particular, what is the role we need to be playing? We, or really we need to be playing a role um, in preparing our students to be 
part of an American democracy. And much of that has to do with teaching it. Um, not just teaching voting, not just teaching you know, how a bill becomes a law, but really instilling a sense that these are the norms and practices and expectations um, in a democracy. And how can you make it better? I think you know, not just incidents surrounding January 6th, there are a lot of structural um, characterization or characteristics of American democracy that need rethought. Um, and that are, are making it difficult to see sort of when you see a kind of a vast difference between public opinion and public policy, for example. There's some real considerations with how have we structured American democracy? Can we be making it better? Whether it's moving closer to something like proportional representation, whether it's really rethinking the electoral college. None of these are easy fixes. <laughs> None of these will happen overnight. But I think there's also much more attention to the fact that are there structural barriers in place um, that, that are impeding the ability of the will of the people to be felt? Um, are people losing that sense that they're being well represented? And then certainly from my perspective, how do I empower, equip my students? How do we colleges empower and equip our students to make democracy better? not in a nonpartisan way, but really using the best practices that we know are available to really spur them to, to want to make democracy better and to know how to do so effectively. So I think we should be concerned, there are concerns about American democracy right now. Um, it is an inflection point, but there are a lot of scholars, practitioners, public citizens who care um, and are paying real attention. And I think if we can really um, activate uh, in, in, you know, in advance of this election, um, that might get us closer to the positive story <laughs> that we all are looking for. Thank you for. very much. I, I very much appreciate <laughs> Doing that. Doing my best. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, and uh, what you were just saying there just kind of took me back to what you said at the beginning, that this is our job. This is our job as, as privileged people to be born and living in a democracy. Absolutely. And it's part of paying it forward. And I think we have seen, you know, there have been years, generations really, who haven't had access to civic education in ways that previous generations did. And I think we're seeing the effects of it. It's certainly not the only reason, um, but we're seeing the effects of not having that sort of instruction on, again, not just how a bill becomes a law, also very important, not just about American history, but how do you take that history and apply it to contemporary problems um, and really uh, it, um, encourage and prepare um, future generations to, to, to keep democracy going, to keep American democracy going. Elizabeth, you have a book coming out next month in April to keep the republic thinking, talking, and acting like a democratic citizen. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, great. Yes, I'm, I'm excited about the book. And it's based on, I don't know how familiar folks are with this story, but it's based on this story about Ben Franklin um, that I learned um, in my research is most likely folklore. It may not have really happened. But the story goes that um, when the framers were uh, working on the at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, and Benjamin Franklin was one of those people working on this new constitution, as he emerged from the Constitutional Convention, people waiting outside said, you know, Mr. Franklin, what, what have you created, a monarchy or a republic? And he supposedly responded, um, a republic if you can keep it. 
Um, and so it may not be true. We're not sure if he actually really said that or if it was actually happened in that way, but it's a really useful bit of folklore because it instills these two ideas. First of all, that republics are fragile. Um, and I think we've really seen a lot of evidence of how republics are fragile, but that we, we the people, have a role to play in keeping it. Um, so if anything, you know, this, meant, this book is meant to be not only a, a how-to guide on, on how to keep the republic, but really a theoretical guide, you know, really trying to take the scholarship that has been done on democratic citizenship, translate it and make it applicable to a broad range of people on how, what it's going to take uh, for we, the people, to keep the republic, and really outlines the dimensions of citizenship that we've been speaking about, um, including things that aren't often referenced, such as thinking like a democratic citizen, you know, really having those democratic norms top of mind when you're thinking about an election, for example, and the peaceful transition of power. Um, talking, uh, I think there's so much attention right now to our ability or inability to, to talk across difference. Um, so really making an argument that citizenship is multifaceted, all of these facets are necessary um, in order to keep the Republic, and thankfully, we've got a lot of good research and practices um, that will equip us, enable us to keep the Republic. So I'm looking forward to it coming out in a few months. Um, and it seems perfect timing as we're getting ready for 2024. Yes, perfect timing and, and a perfect way to wrap up our conversation. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Really nice speaking with you too. Thank you very much for having me. So, you know, I always think about the interviews that we do on the podcast with my journalist hat on, um, but there are times when I learn things that kind of inspire me on a personal level, and I think this conversation with Elizabeth has, has done that. Um, she's made me feel a sense of responsibility to be more civically engaged myself, and all the examples that she gave me on, on how to do that have given me some ideas on what more I can be doing and honestly should be doing. Yes, I totally, totally agree. And also I liked the ideas about laying down ground rules for civil discussions, um, not just in the classroom, but for all of us to create environments where people feel comfortable expressing alternative viewpoints without fearing that they are going to be censored or that the forum will sh be shut down. And also being able to speak up when you feel uncomfortable about something that's been, been said. I think an environment of safe, um, with a safe environment with respect, mutual trust and care, like these are some things that we can all aspire to. And it's certainly um, becoming an issue within higher education, as we all know, um, having that civil discourse, that respect, respectful civil discourse um, is something that a lot of universities and colleges are, are striving to do, um, as they should be doing as um, institutions of higher education. And I was heartened to hear from Elizabeth that any sort of, I guess, failure or, or less successful attempts at doing that isn't really putting young people off, or she wouldn't expect that to put young people off from really engaging in um, civic events. Yes, it's great to hear. And something that she has in common with our second interview. Yes, who, who did you speak with? So I spoke to Michael Bruter, who is a professor of political science and European politics in the Department of Government at the London School of Economics and Political Science. 
and he's also director of the Electoral Psychology Observatory, which, as you can probably guess from the name, researches voting psychology and optimising the experience of voters. Michael has also recently published a book with co-author Sarah Harrison called Inside the Mind of a Voter, and we were able to really get into some of the things that they've discovered in their research. Sounds fascinating. Let's go to Michael. Hello, Michael, and welcome to the THE podcast. It's a real pleasure to be speaking to you today. Thank you very much for having me, and hello. (laughs) Hello. I wanted to ask you, first of all, you've got a a long history of research into elections and political behaviour. What first got you interested in this area of study? I actually arrived into the study of elections and political behavior mostly on the grounds that I felt that we are doing it in the wrong way. Um, In other words, uh, the area I work on, as you say, is called political behavior. But my impression was that very often the models that we were using in social sciences were in fact very institutionalist in perspective. They were really not putting people at the heart of the questions we were asking. And I thought that as a result, uh, some important questions still remain to be asked. And that's why I decided to step in, really. Mm. And you've published um, several books um, about this, this topic. But at the moment, I believe at the London School of Economics and Political Science, you're working on the Electoral Psychology Observatory. Could you tell us a bit about that? That's right. I um, direct the Electoral Psychology Observatory, which I founded with my colleague Sarah Harrison in February 2020, just before COVID started. Um, And it was precisely an endeavour which meant or intended to put people at the heart of the way we both study and uh, organize democracy. And in that sense, we try to shake a little bit some of the assumptions uh, that we make in social sciences, but also that people who organize elections have at the back of their minds very often without even realizing it. And we felt that we should put our finger on it and ask people if we could perhaps look at the world a little bit differently uh, to ensure that we take into account a number of very important things that we know in science and which matter in terms of understanding democracy and democratic crisis. Mm. For instance, 90% of what every one of us thinks and does is subconscious. Uh, Or for instance, we keep hearing that reason and emotion are too opposite alternative in the way people behave. Well, in fact, they are heavily interconnected and our very reason depends on our emotion and our emotions are largely shaped by our reasons. We thought we would put those things back in the picture. Mm, It's so interesting. Thinking about how we all behave as voters. The theme of this podcast is looking at student engagement and um, turning students into citizens. Your work has looked at the needs of lots of different sorts of voters, um, their behaviours, their emotions, including people voting for the first time. Many students will be first-time voters, of of course. What does this group specifically need from the process and the environment to encourage them to participate 
in the voting process and democracy and continue to participate through their lives? Well, first of all, I would say that if they do participate in their first election, then it's a lot more likely that they will be participating through their lives. So one of the, as you rightly point out, uh, again, my colleague Sarah Harrison and myself have led a number of projects on first-time voters. And one of the important findings that we have is that if people participate in one of the first two elections of their lives, they are likely to become lifelong participants. And if they don't, conversely, it becomes very, very difficult to bring them back into democracy. Um, I think that, unfortunately, we tend, as a society or as societies, we tend to be very heavily prejudiced towards uh, first-time voters, young people, and the reason why young people do not participate. You hear a lot of uh, strange suggestions, for instance, that young people do not care uh, mm. about politics or the collectivity, which is simply not true. Um, you hear that young people want more digitalization and they are fed up with old ways of doing democracy. That's absolutely not true. Um, first of all, uh, young people care a lot about elections. They actually want it to remain the centerpiece of democracy. And secondly, whenever you try to dematerialize uh, or make the voting experience more remote, uh, for instance, by introducing postal voting or e-voting on the internet, first-time voters are in many ways the least likely to use it. What they want, if they are actually going to experience uh, elections for the first time, is they want the real thing. Mm. And I think that what we need to do as a society is understand that a first election is a first time. Um, and like all first times that young people experience in their teenage years and uh, young adulthood, it has some intriguing aspects, exciting aspects, scary aspects. People can think about it beforehand, can have a lot of preconceptions of what it might feel like and what might it might not feel like. And we need to adapt to it. Um, we need to adapt to it as a society and as uh, democratic systems, because um, for instance, if you are going to go bungee jumping for the first time, uh, mm -hmm. You'd like the people you are going to deal with to know you are first-time bungee jumpers, unlike the other people around you. And you would expect them to take a little bit of extra care in reassuring you, in answering your questions if you have any, um, in making you feel welcome into the world of bungee jumping. Well, a first-time voter, when they go into a polling station, are treated exactly like you and I, who have already voted many times in our lives. And that's not very effective and that's not very fair because they might have different questions, they might have different um, worries. And in many ways, we don't recognize uh, the specificity of this first time or the fact that it can be both exciting and scary. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting perspective. Um, I'd never really thought about voting like that, I think, and hadn't really reflected very much on my first time as a, a voter either. But you're absolutely right. There's an element of um, being put on the spot, perhaps, like standing on the platform, waiting to undo jump. And maybe an aspect that, about voting that makes young people self-conscious. If this is true, and if this is maybe a a bit of a deterrent. Is there anything that universities can do as environments where there are lots of young people together to foster um, or reassure them about the process and encourage them to participate? 
So first about the factor of being self-conscious, I think that, you know, one of the important things to remember is that uh, young people, like any other group, um, comes in every possible shape and form. Mm. Um, some of them have been going to polling stations many times before even being voters with their parents. Uh, some of them will come from families where everyone talks about elections. Other young people will come from families where everybody around them is telling them that voting and elections are completely useless and a waste of time. Um, similarly, young people may have different friends. Some of them will have big brothers and sisters. Others will be um, the elder sibling in their own family. Um, so not everyone has the same feelings about voting for the first time in exactly the same way that not everybody will have the same approach to uh, drinking their first beer or kissing someone for the first time or driving for the first time or getting their first job. Um, mm -hmm. Those are experiences, rites of passages, if you want to think of them that way, which will hold very different meaning for different people. Mm. Now, before asking what we can do, I think the point is to think about what we shouldn't do and what we are already doing and which is not working. And the problem is that universities and uh, public institutions and NGOs alike are all doing the same thing. They try to convince young people that voting is important, that it's a way of influencing the policies which are going to um, affect them in the future and choosing who's going to represent them. Mm. The problem here is that, first of all, young people know perfectly well that voting is important. They don't need convincing about that. So you preach a convert if you are focusing on that particular message. And secondly, the functions they want democracy to perform can go well beyond issues of representation and policy influence. So when we are actually trying to explain to them why they should vote based on the vocabulary or the functions which democracy performs on behalf of the people who are already voting, in a way we are missing the target and we are uh, talking at cross purposes really. Mm. The reason why many pe young people do not vote is simply because they don't feel that they don't really like very much the political uh, supply side, the offer they are um, being provided. They don't really like political parties very much. Uh, they don't like the idea of somebody talking on their behalf. Uh, they have a lot of thoughts, they have a lot of opinions, but they tend to be a lot more granular. So mm. I think that what we can do at this stage um, is not so much within the context of universities, and it's certainly not along the lines of making young people feel guilty about not voting or trying to convince them that it's important. It's really from the point of view of organizing uh, elections, surfing on what makes many young people want to vote for the first time. And again, it's the idea that it is the first time, that it's exciting, that it's part of becoming an adult. And as such, this is something that many young people actually want to experience and they want it to be special. Mm. Um, and I think we need to actually ensure that this desire, this particular need is met. And that unfortunately is not really the case at the moment in most countries. Right, and that's uh, that is interesting. Um, is there anything about? Um, I mean, we're often reading about digital natives um, that 
that young people are engaged, but they're engaged through social media or grassroots movements rather than mainstream politics. Is there anything about social media, do you think, that is influencing or has changed young people's behaviour in the time that you've been studying it? Well, first of all, I don't think that this is actually really true in the sense mm-hmm. that uh, grassroots politics, for instance, um, is also some, you know, a part of society which is desperately missing the involvement of more young people. I think that many young people who don't vote equally don't participate uh, through social movement and certainly do not join uh, political parties and organizations and so on. You've got a number of other ways of trying to express themselves, for instance, by buying certain products or boycotting certain products or eating certain types of food. Um, And all those things are relevant. But again, when we ask young people how they want democracy to be structured, they do not want electoral democracy and universal democracy, if you want to think of it that way, to be replaced by anything else. Um, Young people are also using social media a lot, but quite critical of it in many ways. I mean, the fact that they are high users doesn't mean that they are uh, oblivious uh, to the many shortcomings of social media. And many of them suffer, for instance, from the tone which is um, used by many in social media or by the uh, the level of conversation really that you can have, which very often can be very snappy and sometimes, <clears throat> pardon me, quite superficial. Um, and in fact, in one experiment that we did uh, a few years ago, as part of a book uh, that we wrote, um, we looked at the impact of political campaigns being done using traditional leaflets or on some social media like Twitter and mm-hmm. exposing young people to them. And we found that the, when the candidates' uh, proposals and manifestos were expressed on Twitter, in fact, young people were typically even more negative about politicians because in a way, the gap between what they would like to get uh, from political elites, parties, politicians, institutions, and so on, and what transpires from their communication on social media is even more obvious in a way than is the case when parties and candidates use traditional leaflets, for instance. Mm. So I think social media is part of the reality, but I think that in many ways, uh, political elites are using it in the wrong way. They want to use it to communicate their truth to citizens in general and young people in particular. Young people don't want to be told just to listen. Uh, They want the people supposed to further their priorities to listen to them instead. Um, And I don't think uh, that's quite the same issue or as quite the same solutions. Mm-mm. There's so many different elements to um, to the political atmosphere and um, and how we all participate in in democracy. In your book, your most recent book, I think, Inside the Mind of a Voter, which you have co-written with Sarah Harrison, who is also the deputy director of the Electoral Psychology Observatory, you talk about elections as a cultural experience. It's such an interesting read about them being a cultural experience in and of themselves with an effect that goes beyond um, who wins, for example. How does that experience shape all of us in our relationships with voting and with being um, engaged as citizens 
do you think? I think that's exactly right. And that's part of what I was telling you at the beginning about the fact that we don't, we think that very often our field of study has asked the wrong questions. We focused a lot historically on the question of who wins or who are you going to vote for? And that's, I mean, those are the questions that really interest institutions, right? They interest political parties, candidates, uh, parliaments, and so on. They want to know who's going to win, which parties are going to get whose vote, and so on. But those are not necessarily the questions which are most important to the voters themselves. And what uh, we say in Inside the Mind of a Voter is that even more than a cultural experience, elections and democracy intrude in a way in our daily lives, become part of our daily lives, become uh, take a place, if you want, uh, shape our relationship with others, for instance, normal people. We've heard so many people telling us about, uh, you know, telling us that they don't remember who they voted for in a given election or they don't remember who won, but they do remember having a really bad argument with their mum or their dad or splitting up with their boyfriend or girlfriend um, or not talking to a friend anymore after that. Those are very memorable experiences. They are very traumatic experiences sometimes. And they are relevant because people care in a way about elections and democracy, even when they don't like politics. And one of the things that um, we find as well in Inside the Mind of a Voter is that very often people in general, both young people and the rest of us, do not just use elections to try and express a preference, which is what much of the literature has always been assuming. But instead, we use elections and democracy to try and do what we think is right. Um, we inhabit a specific role about what we believe we ought to do as voters, what we can do for people around us and our society. So people are not typically selfish when they vote. And, and if you want me to give you a, an example, a comparison, mm. um, I'm an academic. So, you know, one of the things I do as part of my work is to grade uh, essays, for instance, and of course, among all my students, there might be some who are really nice people, some who might be not as nice, uh, but I'm not going to give good grades to the students I like and bad grades to the students I don't like. That's not my job. My job is to read the essays and grade them according to how good they are on a certain, uh, on a certain number of parameters and metrics. So when I grade an essay, I'm really wearing a cap which goes well beyond and is well outside of the question of my personal preferences. And voters do exactly the same. They don't express a preference. They try and wear a specific cap, which corresponds to what they believe very often subconsciously is the role of a voter and they should be doing as voters. And when you understand that, when you understand that people try to be their best self when they participate in democracy, even when they vote for political parties, which you or I might not like when we think they are doing something wrong, uh, they are really trying to do something right. And understanding that gives a very different perspective on understanding the crisis of democracy. And you mentioned um, uh, my last book, uh, which is indeed Inside the Mind of a Voter with Sarah Harrison, but then Sarah wrote a separate book on her own, which is called Pathologies of Democratic Frustration. And what is really useful about that book is that by focusing on the concept of frustration, she shows that much of 
the defiance from people in general and young people in particular about the way democracy works comes from the fact that people have genuinely enormous desires for and about democracy in their countries. And when those desires are not being met, then it creates that sense of frustration and it can create a whole range of very negative uh, reactions on the part of the people. Mm. You um, you use the word uh, crisis to, um, to describe the state of democracy. You've studied elections all around the world, in the US, France, um, here, and I was wondering if you were going to design an election or create good uh, a good election environment, what are the elements that you would take from some of the different countries that you've looked at? Like who does who does what well? I'll answer your question in, in at two levels really. I mean, one of the things we do do because we work a lot with different electoral commissions in Australia, in South Africa, in Sweden, in uh, many countries all over the world, uh, and also with international organizations in the EU and so on. Um, so we do a lot of benchmarking and try to compare the strategies of different systems. And it's really about highlighting very often specific initiatives um, which um, work better than others. One thing, for instance, is that every country in the world is faced with the need to make elections a little bit more flexible because um, the old idea of everybody being in a very specific place on a very specific date is becoming very difficult um, to uh, assume, if you want, in a system whereby people have become a lot more mobile. But mm. one of the things we find, for instance, is that advanced voting, which is opening polling stations, real polling stations, for several weeks uh, before election day, as is the case, for instance, in Australia or in Scandinavia, works a lot better and leads to far more positive experiences by citizens than uh, postal or uh, internet voting, which is uh, allowing people to vote from their own home or the kitchen table, which doesn't give them the same sense of partaking in a societal experience. So that's one of the things I would do. Mm. Um, there are uh, There is a lot of work we do with electoral commissions and comparing ballot paper design, looking at the influence of using paper ballots rather than voting machines. And again, people tend to be um, more satisfied when they use paper ballots for some reason. Um, and it makes them think about their electoral uh, choice in different ways. Uh, we do a lot of work with architects and designers on how to design and organize polling stations, on where to hold them and so on. That's the first part of my answer. The second part is that because we're academics with, I would like to think a very creative mind, uh, much of our work is precisely working with those designers, uh, architects, AI specialists, but also people working in arts, museums, health disciplines, and so on, to find new ways of making democracy and elections better and lead to a better experience than is the case at the moment. And that includes far-reaching um, questions like how can we capture all the thoughts I was telling you about that people have, but which is not captured by just asking them which party they prefer or which candidate they prefer. How can we actually transform that immense 
wealth of information and opinion which exists, which people uh, tend to feel very strongly about, and which at the moment is largely wasted by existing systems. And by the way, when I say existing systems, it's not only elections, but even other systems of participative democracy and deliberative democracy and so on, they do not provide an answer to those issues, which seems to be satisfactory according to people. Mm. So that's what we are working on at the moment. It, uh, I can't really give you uh, the final results yet, but I can tell you about some of the plans that we have, um, which include um, really creating new electoral prototypes and then partnering with um, electoral commissions and democratic institutions to then make those prototypes travel around the world and give a chance to people to experiment them for themselves or putting them in national museums, for instance, so that people can interact with them and tell us whether they feel it's actually making their democratic experience better and more fulfilling, and also whether it makes democracy more inclusive in other words, not only enable people who are underrepresented in elections to be better represented, that includes first-time voters, but also, for instance, people with hidden disabilities, but also enables democracy to fulfill more of those functions I was telling you about, more of those different functions that they are not that democracy is not equipped um, to fulfill, but which people want it to perform. And mm. finally, making democracy more resilient when it's faced with major external crises like a pandemic, been there, done that, we know it's very difficult, uh, but last time around people had to literally improvise solutions, major environmental disasters or terrorist attacks, for instance. So we work with people who organize democracy so that next time, unfortunately, some issues like those happen, they can make a truly informed and science-based decision on how best to protect democracy and make it as equitable and inclusive as possible in the face of those very difficult potential circumstances. Mm. Well, thank you so much for those thoughts. In this year of elections, we've got elections coming up in the UK and in many other countries. There's so much food for thought and I really enjoyed Inside the Mind of a Voter. It really made me think about elections in a very different way. So I will say thank you very much for your time this morning, Michael. I have, um, I've really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you very much, Eliza, and it was a pleasure for me as well. So what I really enjoyed about that conversation was learning a bit more about first-time voters and what they need from the process, as well as some of the misconceptions that we have about them that they don't care, that they're too influenced by social media. Michael was really able to set things straight in that regard. And I really liked what he said about first time voting being like any time, any sort of first time experience, like your first kiss, that you really need to be uh, made reassured, feel welcome, have a place to answer questions. Um, I really felt that he really humanised and got right down to the granular details of actually experiencing voting. Mm. Yeah, definitely. First kiss, but also bungee jumping, <laughs> like bungee yes. jumping for the first time and just how daunting, but also exhilarating that just even the expectations of that experience might be. And I think it's something is for the more um, <clears throat> August among us, let's say uh, we might have forgotten what our first time voting was or how much 
We were looking forward to going in and, and really exercising our right to vote for the first time. And yeah, it totally makes sense that that would be a foreign experience for um, young people to go in and vote for the first time and something that's a really big deal and important to them and they do need some sort of guidance to navigate that. Yeah, absolutely. He did make me think though that voting obviously is something that hopefully we begin when we're young and continue throughout our lives, whilst bungee jumping might be something that you would only do once. Speaking for myself. <laughs> if that. But I was also interested in the breadth of his work to make democracy more inclusive and using an interdisciplinary approach about how you improve the environment and what what makes people vote, what the experience of voting is like and how we can use that to, to foster more um, engaged voting and, and more civic engagement. I also, he, he gave us a good reminder um, in his kind of analysis of the voter's mind when he said that whenever people go into the voting booth, they really are trying to do something right. They are really trying to be on their best behavior. And I think that's something to try to keep in mind um, as things become more emotionally heightened uh, in the lead up to elections. And hopefully it'll help us all just kind of cool down and take a pause when we feel frustrated that people have different candidates or different ideologies and different beliefs from us to just remember that everyone's kind of acting on their values and really doing, making the decision that they really think is the best decision for them in that moment. Yeah, that's true. It did seem to say something positive about human nature. I thought both interviews really gave me a new way of thinking about um, the civic engagement, participating in democracy, and really just how important it is to, to be part of that process as a human, as a citizen. Mm. And the important role that universities play in all of this. Yes. Wonderful. Um, Eliza, thanks so much for joining us on this episode and thank you to Elizabeth and Michael for their fascinating insights on uh, political science, democracy and yeah, how to get young people involved. It was my pleasure. I've really enjoyed this episode. Thanks very much to all of you for listening. Um, if you want to send us some ideas, you can send those to Eliza, eliza.compton at timeshighereducation.com. We will see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.